Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we echo the words of Psalm 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would help us to understand your glory afresh today. And may we be equipped, not just for today, but for this week and for the coming months, to uh, live for you and to know you. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went camping, and they pitched their tent out under the stars. And sometime during the night, Holmes woke Watson up and said, Holmes, look up to the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes said, Watson, what do you deduce from that? And Watson replied, well, if there are millions of stars, then there must also be millions of planets, and maybe there are some just like our planet Earth. And if that's the case, then maybe there could be life somewhere apart from this Earth. What about you, Holmes? What do you deduce? And Holmes replied, Watson, it tells me that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) What do you see when you look up 
at the skies. What do the skies tell us? Uh, if you asked a poet or, or a scientist or an atheist or a postmodernist, you would get lots of different answers, I suspect. This morning we have before us a truly glorious psalm. C.S. Lewis once said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in, in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And surely he is right. This is a truly glorious psalm. It is a psalm full of the glory and greatness of God. And in this psalm, King David tells us what we should see when we lift our eyes and look to the skies and to the heavens. In fact, at the very heart of this psalm, there's a question that's being tackled. It's even bigger than the question, what do we see in the skies? For at the heart of this psalm is the question, how can I really know God at all? And that is no academic question for each of us here this morning. For I can imagine many of us today are going through uh, real questions and battles in our own lives. And we wonder if there really is a God, a, a God who is relational and who wants to relate to me and who wants to be known by me. A God who wants me to rejoice in him. How can I know this God? And all the more in the storms and trials of life. When the heavens feel silent, when God feels distant. How can we really know God? Well, Psalm 19 gives us some wonderful answers. First, God reveals his glory in the skies. Look down with me at verse 1. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Well, how does this declaring take place? Well, verses 2 to 4 show us how. The heavens, the skies proclaim a message about God, but they do not use words, but they contain a visual proclamation. This proclamation goes to the ends of the earth, but not with the spoken word, but with the words written across the heavens and across the skies. The image of verse 2 is of an exhaustible fountain bubbling up, overflowing with an exhaustible supply of, of revelation and, and truth about the glory of, of God broadcast across all of the nations. God reveals his glory in the skies. And it's worth noting just how countercultural that claim is from King David. For in the nations around him in that day, there were many nations who had poetry written about the glory of the heavens. For many nations worshipped the sun and the moon. They, they worshipped them as deities, as gods in and of themselves. But notice David says, the sun is not the god. Don't be confused. No, there is someone who stands behind the sun and the moon and the heavens. And that is why I think in verses 4 and 5, David focuses on the sun. And his point is to show the nations that the God he worships is not the sun, but rather the God who makes the sun. 
The picture of the son is the picture of a bridegroom walking out of his chamber on the day of his wedding. And his face is full of anticipation and joy at what lies ahead of him on his wedding day. Or it's a picture of a great warrior heading out, confident that whatever he meets in his path, he will be able to proceed and overcome what lies ahead. It is a truly wonderful, glorious picture of the sun setting out each morning on its daily course. But the point behind it, says King David, is do not worship the sun. Worship the God who made the sun. For the sun is not the ultimate cause. No, God is. God is the one who pitches, verse 4, a tent for the sun, the, 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 the source of the sun, the, the place where the sun comes from each morning. It is God who controls the path of the sun. And if God can control the sun, how glorious must God be? God reveals his glory in the skies. Which means that for each one of us, it is a good habit to get used to looking up to the skies. And I mean that literally. It is good for us to lift our eyes up from the busyness of the day in front of us as we live in our cities and we we get focused on the here and now to stop and to look up frequently, to let our hearts be filled with the expanse of the skies. It is good to go on holiday and to look up and to rejoice in what God has done in the heavens above us and to allow that message, that proclamation to fill our hearts afresh with the glory of God, which we do not see in our cities and in our towns in front of us. Of course, there are those who look up into the sky and do not see God's glory. I'm sure we've all had that experience with our TV sets when we're watching our favorite uh, program, or maybe it's the, the lion, Lions or the, uh, the Crickets test match, and at just a crucial moment, the, the picture goes crackly and fuzzy and, and the picture breaks down. And we're left wondering, is the problem with the transmitter or is the problem with my TV receiving the signal? Where's the problem with the transmission? Well, David says there's no problem with the sender. The signal's going out just fine. God is declaring his glory in the heavens. The whole world can see it. The problem, if people do not see it, is not with the message sent, but with the receiver who picks up the message. Romans 1 picks up the theme of Psalm 19, and in that uh, explanation, Paul says that humanity at large, we're in the business of pushing God away. We're trying to suppress the truth about God that is known to us in creation. Think of a child at the seaside, and you know the games that children play with beach balls. They go out into the water, and they, they take the beach ball that's full of air, and they try to push it down under the surface of the water. And they try to see how long they can balance on the beach ball under the water. But of course, you know eventually what's going to happen, that the ball is going to come back to the surface and the child is going to be sort of flung aside. And that's kind of a picture of what the world is doing with the knowledge of God seen in the heavens, trying to suppress that knowledge, keep it beneath the surface, keep it out of sight, keep it away from their conscious thoughts. And yet one day that ball is coming back to the surface. It cannot stay down. God's glory is revealed in the heavens. How can we know God? David says, God reveals his glory in the skies. And secondly, God reveals his glory in the scriptures. 
it's almost as if in this psalm that the, the sun sets at the end of verse 6. It's, it's had its day, it's, it's run its course. And then suddenly, verse 7, David changes his, his mood and his tone, and his focus shifts from the general and the expansive to the particular. And he talks now about the scriptures. And what follows in verses 7 to 11 is a, a cascade of commendation about the beauty of God's word. He uses different words to describe God's word. He talks about uh, God's law, God's statutes, God's precepts, his commands, his ordinances. But all these words point to the same body of revelation, the word of God given to his people. And the psalmist is euphoric about his experience of engaging with this word. He says God's word is perfect, it is trustworthy, it is right, it is radiant, it is pure, and it is sure. And one commentator pointed out that these descriptive words that describe God's law, well, normally they were used of people and of relationships. Normally it's people who are trustworthy and pure and sure. But here the psalmist says, no, no, it's God's word. And I think that's significant, for the psalmist doesn't see God's word as a set of dry and uh, boring set of rules but rather he sees them as the means of relationship. He doesn't just look at a set of words, but he sees behind the words a person who speaks and relates. And I think it's significant that in the first half of the psalm, looking at the creation, David uses the word El for God in verse 1. That is a a general term for for, for any deity. But then in verse 7 onwards, he uses the words Yahweh, the Lord, which is the personal covenant relational word for God the God of Israel, the God who relates, the God who makes himself known to his people in a special way. And as David looks at God's word, he sees not just the word, but the God who stands behind the word, the God who relates to his people. And it is a glorious relationship to have. God reveals his glory in the scriptures. And which means that we come to verse 10, David says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Then honey from the comb. Imagine you've bought a lottery ticket and you know the jackpot that night is going to be large, millions of pounds. And you come home on a Saturday night, I guess, I've never bought a ticket before, but imagine you're sitting there and you're thinking, what do I do tonight? Do I read the paper or do I talk to my friends or what should I do? And you know that at eight o'clock, that's when they're going to announce the winning numbers. Well, if you've got your ticket in your hand, you're going to flick on the TV, aren't you? And you're just going to check. Maybe, just maybe, I might have won the jackpot tonight. But David says, the word of the Lord is better than gold, than much pure gold. It is more precious, he says, than the winning lottery ticket. It is more attractive to our hearts than the thought of being extremely rich. Or in the days before, chocolate and Nutella and cane sugar, honey from the comb was the sweetest thing you could think of. It was the the most precious delicacy. It was the the barometer of sweetness. And David says, God's word is, is sweeter than the sweetest thing you could possibly imagine. And it's worth being clear that what David is talking about here is is the first half of our scriptures, which includes the law, Exodus and Leviticus. 
I wonder how many of us wake up on Monday morning and we realize that our Bible reading plan is taking us to Leviticus for the next month. How many of us rejoice that that is where God is going to put us for the next month? And yet David says of that very word, it is sweeter to us than honey. I heard a story recently um, that uh, a guy called Robert Sumner tells in his book, The Wonder of the Word of God. He tells a story about a man who uh, was badly injured in an explosion. And in the injuries, his hands were severely damaged and he lost his eyesight. His face was very badly damaged. Um, He had just become a Christian right before the accident happened. And after the accident, as he was recovering and trying to make sense of his life, he was trying to find a way to read the Bible. And, And one of his great regrets was that he couldn't read the Bible with his eyes. And he was heartbroken. And so uh, the book recounts how uh, the man investigated different ways to read the Bible for himself. So he he heard about um, how people could read Braille with their lips. And he tried that, but he realized his lips were so damaged in the accident that he couldn't feel enough in his lips to read Braille. And he was heartbroken. And then one day, just as he was trying, he realized that with his tongue, he could just about make out the dots on the page. And so he taught himself how to read the Bible with his tongue. And at the time of writing, uh, Robert says, this man has read the Bible from cover to cover four times with just his tongue. Now, why would someone do that? That is hours of agony and confusion and uncertainty. Why would a man do that? Not because he sees the Bible as a set of rules and regulations, a set of dry commands that bring no life. You only do that if you are convinced that the word of God is sweeter than honey, better than gold, and that through God's word you meet the living God who brings life in abundance. Well, I think the challenge is clear for us this morning. I have to ask us, how do we feel about God's word today? Are we in love with it? Are we cherishing it? Are we looking forward to the next time we can open it and just pour over it? Or have our hearts grown cold? Do we enjoy flicking on the TV and just deadening our minds in front of the TV? Or, or do we enjoy just flicking open any old book and pushing God away? Or are we convinced that in the pages of Scripture we find the revelation of God the living God who brings us life. And so it's simple, isn't it? We just go away, we try harder, and we read our Bibles, and we love God. No, it's not. It's not my experience of being a Christian. It is not that simple. And it is not that simple for King David. Yes, God reveals his glory in the skies. Yes, God reveals his glory in the scriptures. But David finishes this psalm on a point of personal distress. Do you see? He says, I have a sinful heart. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? O Lord, forgive my hidden faults. I think the point is that David knows how good God has been in revealing himself in the skies and in the scriptures. And yet David knows that his heart is sinful and his heart doesn't like the revelation. He doesn't enjoy it as he knows he should. 
He is a man who has, verse 13, hidden and, verse 13, willful sin. David has a heart like that shopping trolley. When you go to the shop and you find that trolley just near the front door and it's on its own and you think, oh, great, a handy trolley just next to, to my shopping trip. But as you start to push it, you realize that it's been left because it has a wonky wheel. And as you walk down the aisle, you keep finding it veering off into a, gla- a display of champagne glasses or, or whatever it is. And no matter how hard you try to push it straight forward, it keeps on veering off. And that is the heart David has. And it is a heart I have. And it is a heart we all have. And so as David surveys the true glory of the skies and of the scriptures, he looks at his own heart and realizes the real problem is the human heart does not want to go God's way. It does not naturally enjoy God's glory. And so he prays a wonderful prayer, verse 14. He says to the Lord, May the words of my mouth, that is the external of my life, and may the meditation of my heart, that is the internal life, please, may these be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, David finishes this wonderful psalm by flying to the one place where he can find help. He flies to his rock and his redeemer, the place where he finds forgiveness for his failings and strength to live as God wants him to live. And if we're here this morning and we know our hearts have gone cold, if we know our hearts are like that shopping trolley veering away in any direction but forward, Come with David to the rock and the redeemer. Find forgiveness, find strength, and come back and praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in a world where there is much confusion about what to believe and there is much confusion about who you are, We thank you that you have clearly laid out for us in the skies and in the scriptures all of your glory. And Father, please give us hearts that do not stray and hearts that are not willful. But may we have hearts that run to you and find much gold and much honey in your word. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.